Amen. I told Mac this is uh, number one in the Yusuf chart. <laughs> Thank you, team. A few years ago, some of you remember, the, probably the younger ones might not, but back in the 90s and in the early 2000s, there was something, it was a big craze, was known as extreme sports. Some of you remember that, extreme sports. What is it? Well, it was sport that was taken to an extreme. Right? They're showing you some of that on the screen. I mean, snowboarding was great, but snowboarding after jumping from an airplane was much more exciting. Uh, skiing down a steep slope was great, but skiing down steep slope uh, after jumping from a helicopter was more exciting. Mountain biking was great. My son-in-law goes all over the world mountain biking, but mountain biking down a snow-covered mountain slalom course at 70 miles an hour was much more thrilling. That's extreme sports. But let me get to the bottom line. I always get to the bottom line. Just about most of those who would be sitting in front of the television screen watching these whom they think crazy athletes uh, performing these extreme sports are in far more danger than these athletes. You say, oh, Michael, how can that be? I'm going to answer you that question, but first of all, I'm going to give you a quiz. Okay, I want to give you a quiz. You can, no, it's self-correcting, so you, you, nobody's going to see your answer. You just write it down. You're the only one who's going to see the answer, okay? Uh, you're the only one who's going to see it. Question. Who is the person who's taking the greater risk the athlete or the television watcher? Write your answer down. Okay? Have you done that? Next question. Who is in greater danger? The couch potato champion <laughs> or the athlete who's performing these extreme sports? Write the answer down. Done? Now, if your answer to both of these is that the armchair athlete is at greater risk and a greater danger, I want you to pat yourself on the back. Just pat yourself on the back. Well, some of you got it right. See, how come? How come? I want to tell you why. Listen carefully, please. When you sit back and watching what appears to be to you is crazy stuff, crazy action. Your blood pressure rises. Often you're munching on some food that's clogging your arteries. <laughs> you're internalizing stress often mounts, no outlet for that stress uh, to go, right? In the meantime, the athletes whom you think they're nuts, uh, they keep their body fit. 
because of that fitness, their stress level is lowered. Are you with me? The lungs operate more efficiently. Uh, they're overall hurtling through the air is less, is less risky than sitting in front of the television stuffing their faces. Now, I want to submit to you, listen carefully, I want to submit to you, listen, 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 I want to submit to you that this scenario, spiritually speaking, has been repeated millions of times every single day among believers. What do I mean by this? Those who sit back and do nothing for Jesus except criticize everything and everybody are in greater danger than those who roll up their sleeves and take risks for God. Those who are forever receiving, consuming, taking, watching are at a, a far more risk than those who are giving and serving and ministering and doing for Jesus. Listen to me, please. Listen to me. I am absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that these spiritually, spiritual couch potato champions are far, far, far at greater risk than those who are taking risk for God. When you compare these physical couch potatoes with the spiritual couch potatoes, you see the similarities. Think about this, please. Think about it with me. Whether you agree with me or not, I just want you to think with me, please. The spiritual couch potatoes may convince themselves that they are safe, may convince themselves that they are secure, may convince themselves that they are protected. They may convince themselves, but what they're doing is that they're being destroyed from the inside out. The spiritual couch potatoes develop the following symptoms. I'm not a doctor, but I'm a spiritual doctor. They develop a weaker love for Jesus. I told you when I did the letter to the Ephesians, the very first letter from the book of Revelation, the Lord led me to, when I, they talked about losing their first love, the Lord said, when you finish this, I'm going to do a series uh, about how to grow your love for Jesus instead of cooling your love for Jesus. So we're all going to learn, we're starting next week, how to grow in our love for Jesus. See, what happens is that you, you develop a weaker love for Jesus. That's the first symptom. You, you develop a weaker love for Jesus. You're going to develop a weaker spiritual lungs that are unable to inhale grace and forgiveness. Uh, you develop a weaker spiritual heart for the things that are near and dear to the heart of Jesus then ultimately, you're going to experience spiritual demise. I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but you're going to develop spiritual demise. According to Jesus, the spiritual catch potatoes who belong to the church in the city of Laodicea 
they were in danger of being vomited and spit out of his mouth. Now, if I piqued your interest, turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, beginning verse 14. And in the Pew Bible, it's page 1917. In the Pew Bible, if you don't have your Bible with you. And again, we're going to hear and see Jonathan reading that letter on location. pray to you in the witness of your children. that I would rather you take me home. Then become lukewarm like those in the church of Laodicea. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an unbelievable and incredible church. And in many ways, it resembles many, many churches in the 21st century. It has the distinct and the distinction of being the only church of all the seven that are resurrected 
glorified, soon-coming Lord Jesus could not find one blessed good thing to say about them. Not one. Not one. As I told you before, there are some people who believe that these seven churches are, belong to different periods of time, that the first church, uh, Philadelphia, belongs to the first century and so on, and this Laodicean church belongs to this 21st century. This is the last church. Now, I don't believe that. That's not how I read the Scripture, but it doesn't matter. You can take it either way. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to affect your salvation one way or the other. I'm just telling you, these are wonderful believers who believe that way. Either way is fine. But the important thing is that you need to know a few things about the city of Laodicea in order to understand and to comprehend the letter and the burden of our Lord Jesus in writing and in sending that letter to them. You have to understand a few things about the city, the city itself. First of all, it was founded in the year 250 B.C. by Antichos of Syria. Now, Antichos of Syria is where um, the city of Antioch was named after him, and he founded this city and named it after his wife, uh, Laodicea. I'm sorry, honey, I can't name a city for you, but uh, I'm told that, uh, that <laughs> there, is a, there is a town called Elizabethan in Tennessee. Maybe we can <laughs> name that for you. <laughs> he named it for his wife. Laodicea was a remarkable city in every way, in all the ones we've been looking at. This is the most remarkable city of them all. It would have been the kind of city that every business consultant would set as an example for success. You know, as a consultant is the person who basically you ask him what time it is, and he takes your watch and tells you what time it is, and then he puts it in his pocket. <laughs> every business consultant will put Laodicea as a model of success. Every motivational speaker would come to your boardroom and to your business and, and, and would give uh, Laodicea as a model for success and for business management. Uh, it would be exhibit A in every business book that is ever published on management. It would have been the subject of every PowerPoint presentation. It, it, every business consultant would begin his speech by saying, let me tell you about Laodicea. <laughs> Why? Because it was the business capital of the region. It was the financial center of the region. It was the manufacturing center of the region. It was the medical scientific center of the region. Every bank 
has a branch <laughs> and a head office in Laodicea. Every financial institution, they had an, an address in Laodicea. Every investment firm and a brokerage firm and a financial institution, they have to have, even if it's a cubby hole, but they have to say, hey, we got an office in Laodicea. <laughs> they cannot afford not to have an address in Laodicea. That's how it was. Why? Well, it was the center of the manufacturing of the finest clothes. Uh, the sheep that grazed on those hills that you saw in these pictures, there were sh sheep that were renowned in this Laodicean hill from which uh, they were famous for soft, uh, violet, black, glossy wool, which was rare and was manufactured in Laodicea. But that's not all. It was the medical center of the region, and then became the talk of the world, literally. Nearby the temple of uh, Mancurio, uh, there was a, a medical school, and it was second to none. In fact, that medical center became world-renowned because they discovered a special salve for the, the curing of all eye diseases, powder. I want you to think with me. Please just think with me. They are the financial capital of the world, the clothing manufacturing capital of the world, the medical center of the world, and yet Jesus said, I am not impressed. It's a rough translation, but you get the meaning. Let me rephrase the words of Jesus without doing disservice or doing any harm to the text. And Jesus is saying, you may be the financial capital of the world, but your spiritual poverty is grinding. You may be the clothing manufacturing center of the world, but your spiritual nakedness exposes your shame. You may be the boast, boasting about your eye salve, but in reality, your spiritual blindness is causing you not to see your true spiritual condition. As we've been seeing throughout the seven churches, the resurrected, glorified Jesus finds a characteristic about the city, finds a, something about the culture, and, and he will lift that out and he would apply it either for them to depart from or to apply it to themselves and use that for the church. But wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I left something out here of most important. The most important thing, I left that out about this city. Listen, this is the most important part. Something else important about the city of Laodicea. And Jesus focuses on it like a laser beam. The water supply to the city of Laodicea had to travel several miles through underground aqueducts. And the water, because it traveled long distance underground, by the time it reached the city, it, it was foul, it was dirty, and it was tipid. This water was not hot enough to relax and restore and rejuvenate 
like the hot springs in the nearby Heriopolis. That's H-I-E-R, Heriopolis. Nearby, they had hot springs where people went there and were rejuvenated. It was not cold enough to refresh like the streams of cold water in the nearby Colossae. Question, what good is that water? What good is it for? Oh, it was good for one thing. They drank it to induce vomit. I grew up in the days of Noah and in the, in the land of Noah. And I remember as a little boy, that's what they did. They gave people lukewarm water with salt in order to induce vomit. Our resurrected glorified, soon-coming Lord Jesus is saying to them, you are like your water. Your indifference and your complacency is making me sick. Your apathy is making me nauseous. Your half-hearted commitment is making me feel like I have drank a glass of your water. Now, beloved, I am absolutely convinced that this is how our Lord Jesus Christ now feels about so many of the 21st century churches, His churches that have departed from the truth. Someone said, there are some churches that make Jesus weep. Other churches make Jesus angry. Then others make Jesus sick. I pray to God that our church make Jesus rejoice. I don't want to be part of a church like those ones. So what is the answer? What's the, praise God, I don't have to come with the answer. Praise God, we don't have to come with the answer. Jesus Himself gives the answer, and here the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus gives them three things. First of all, He gives them, and He alerts them to their dangerous condition. He alerts them to their dangerous condition. Secondly, He advises them how to get out of their dangerous condition. And finally, He awards them if they get away from their dangerous condition. Here you have it, alert, advice, and award. This is Jesus' alert system. It's His alert system, His alert system. The truth is most people have blind spots. All of us have blind spots. What makes it worse is that none of us are naturally alert to our blind spots. Otherwise, there wouldn't be blind spots, right? I remember about 30 years ago, the late Roy Ludwig, for whom that chapel is named, came to me and something I thought was a virtue, and he, he said, Brother, you have a blind spot. And he alerted me to it. And I was so grateful to him back then, I'm grateful to him to this day. So the question is, how do you react when somebody points you a blind spot? How do you react to it? Now, there's some people react angrily, 
when you point their blind, to their blind spot. Others receive it graciously and do self-examination and come clean with God and say, Lord, search me, O God. I want to come clean with you. And then there's a third group, third reaction, and those who are react apathetically. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the person who said, I'm neither for nor against apathy. <laughs> Remind me of the preacher who was really preaching, waxing eloquently about apathy and against apathy, and he was preaching his heart out. And then he turned to the person in the front pew and he said, is that not so? And the man said, I don't know and I don't care. That warms the heart of the preacher. <laughs> now, I'm going to make a statement that's going to startle some of you, not obvious, some of you. I believe with all my heart that apathy is Jesus' number one enemy. Why am I saying this? Listen carefully, please. Because he knows how to deal with the red-hot fanatics. He knows how to deal with the cold enemy. But it's a tippet, apathetic, lukewarm person that makes him sick. And here in this letter to the believers in the city of Laodicea, our glorified Lord Jesus is telling them your blind spot is that you are not realistic in your self-assessment. You are smug in your self-satisfaction. You are resting on your worldly reputation. You are placing your total confidence in your material, material resources. You're puffed up with your wealth. In other words, you're blind to your true condition. Oh, Lord, may that never be said of me. You are materially rich, but you are spiritually penniless. You may be dressed up in the designer clothes, but you're spiritually and shamefully naked. You may be able to boast about your eye self but you are truly spiritually blind to what is really matters. Hear me right, please. Hear me right. If I know one sin, really close up, it's the sin of pride. And that is why I want you to hear me right on this one. All sin, all sin, all sins are infectious. But pride is the most infectious and dangerous sin of all. And that is why here Jesus had to speak to them bluntly. He had to hit them by the two-by-four. I know He hit me by the two-by-four sometimes. <laughs> He's saying, wake up and smell the coffee. You are paupers in spite of your banks. You're blind in spite of your eye powder. You're naked in spite of your clothing manufacturing companies. First of all, he does what? Alerts them. He does what? He does what? And secondly, he advises them. 
Underline that in verse 18 in your Bible, Revelation 3.18. Just underline it. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that verse. It gives me palpitation. It really does. <laughs> it's just an amazing verse. I counsel you. Say that with me. Can you say it loudly? I don't mind confessing publicly. You know, I'm transparent, and always my emotions are on my sleeve, and, and that's okay. Uh, this verse, whether I read it privately or publicly, gives me goosebumps. I'm going to tell you why. The God who said, let there be light, and there it was. The God, the very God who clicked His fingers and the galaxies began to dance in their orbits. That same God says, I counsel you. What? Yeah. He could have said, I order you. He could have said, I command you. He could have said, I demand of you. But no. He said, I counsel you. Our amazing God, listen, the older I get, the, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I am overwhelmed by how amazing our God is. He respects the very freedom that He gives us. He respects the freedom He gives us. I've done this before, so I, I know some of you probably have, but I'm, I have the gumption to admit it publicly, confess it. I've done what I'm going to tell you. I've done this several times. When I see someone causing a lot of harm and their sin and disobedience, really, when they're acting foolishly, and, and because we know that sin just harms a lot of people, not just the person who sins, right? When somebody acting foolishly harms a lot of people, now, I'm always, I always pray and say, God, suck it to them. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I know I've done, I've done it. So here the voice of God says, I'm speaking to them. I said, Lord, whack them. I'm sending messages and messengers to them. I say, God, smack them silly. God says, I'm counseling them. You and I know that God can terrify us, but He doesn't. He can order us. Often He does it, not in the beginning anyway. He can demand from us, but He doesn't. He prefers first to counsel us. That small voice. He prefers first to advise us. He prefers first to convict us. He prefers first to call us. He prefers first to guide us. He prefers first to lead us. Oh, to be sure, don't miss what I'm going to tell you, there are dire consequences to ignoring His counsel. There is a terrible price to be paid for continuous disobedience. Oh, I know that. <laughs> I know it. 
but he always starts the process with counseling us, advising us, his small voice speaking gently and softly. Have you heard that small voice? Last week, I'm being interviewed in London by the media. My wife was there, the interviewer, when the interviewer was saying, uh, actually somehow got into this subject for, for some reason because the condition of the church in England is, is just is abysmal. I'm, I cannot tell you. We think we have it bad here. It's just… And, 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 and the interviewer, was, she was saying, talking about what's happening to the church throughout the United Kingdom, and, and, and we were getting in the conversation, and, and I talked about the voice of God, and He cannot reason with man forever, and, and, and I, I, I pointed to an experience I shared with you several months ago. When I was six years old, my dad built a new house, and we were in the older part of the city, and he sold that house, and he built a new one. It's a lovely house, but in the new part of the city, but it happened to be near a railway line. And my first night in that new house, every time the train whistled and went by, in the middle of the night, I jumped six inches off my bed. Next night, next night, next night. Oh, but three weeks later, I slept like a baby. Whistling, noise, and all. What happened? I got used to the whistling of the train. I began to subconsciously override the sound of the train. Let me implore you, please listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I may be warning somebody here today. I don't know why the Lord laid that heavy on my heart. I may be warning somebody here for the last time. Please do not override the voice of the Holy Spirit. Stop silencing the voice of His counsel. So what is Jesus' counsel? to the believers in Laodicea. He says, come and buy from me true spiritual gold that will make you truly rich. Come and buy from me real spiritual clothes that will cover your sin and guilt. Come and buy from me good spiritual eyes of that will open your spiritual eyes. When I say this, I, I, I'm not flattering you. I really believe that. I know some of you here, not all of you, but some of you alert. And you heard the word read when the Bible was read, buy, and you said, buying? What is this? Are we going to buy salvation now? Is salvation for sale? Or is Jesus saying, come, come and buy from me? What is this all about? No, of course not. You know it's not. Now in a million knows. I want to tell you. I want to tell you. I want to tell you. Listen carefully. This is the best buy of your lifetime. This is the biggest deal in the whole universe. This is the greatest bargain in all of human history. 
When you come in repentance, you exchange your sin for His forgiveness. You exchange your failure with His success. You exchange your pain for His healing. You exchange your pride in your sin for His humility. You exchange your worthless self-righteousness for His true righteousness. You exchange the rust of your stubbornness and rebellion for His gold of obedience. You come and you exchange your pride of your ideas and your opinions for the true peace and contentment that only God can give you. Have you ever known a bargain like that? Only a foolish person turns a bargain like that down. Listen, my wife will testify to you. I'm a bargainer. I hate paying full price for anything. Unashamedly, I confess it. It's in the blood. You can't help it. You look at this nose, and you know. That's just, it's, just the, it's just the way it is, and it's too late now. I'm too old to change. And my beloved friends, listen to me. This exchange is not exchange of equal sums. You pay X to get Z. No, 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 no. This is not an equal exchange. I am giving him my trash for his riches. I'm giving him my sin for his forgiveness. I'm giving him my worry and anxiety for his peace. A question that's often raised regarding these in the church of Laodicea, were they really carnal believers or are they never believers at all? But you know what? Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't get sidetracked. If Satan has blinded someone's heart, it does not matter whether that person is a churchgoer or not. In fact, there's so many people, hearts are blinded who are churchgoers. It doesn't matter whether we, that person has heard the truth, then turned their back on that truth, or never heard the truth at all. It doesn't matter. The message of the resurrected, glorified Jesus is the same. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. We're going to be singing a chorus at the end of this message. And I pray to God that you would have the courage to come to Him and respond to His invitation. In fact, the glorified Jesus is the one who's knocking on the door of the heart. Think about this. Please think about it. Think about it. (laughs) The master of the house, the master of the house, is not beating the door down. He's knocking. And he gently knocks. And then he waits. And then he knocks louder. Then he waits. Then he knocks louder. Then he waits. And his final decision is judgment. Don't wait till that. Will you open the door of your heart to him? Wherever you are, whatever condition you're in, 
Only you know he knows. Nobody else does. Not even the dearest and nearest know where we are. Will you open your heart? He alerts, he advises, and then he awards. Isn't that amazing? His greatest award is for those who overcome, and it's, he will give them the right to sit on the throne with him. Let me tell you something. That boggles my mind. Now, if you see me sometimes fall apart and cry, this tears me up. <laughs> it really does. Think about this. Queen Elizabeth is such a gracious lady, and all the people who near her talk about how gracious she is and, and that she knows the Lord and, and, and so on. But, but in, in her graciousness, she has never once, and she loved her husband, the late uh, 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 Prince Philip. She loved him dearly. Never once she got him to sit on the throne with her. Not once. He sat next to her in the chair next to her, but never on the throne with her. I want you to think about this. The reason I'm giving a human illustration to tell you why this is buggles the mind. We're going to sit on the throne with Jesus. First, he said, give me your trash, and I'll give you gold in exchange. Then he says, if you accept my, this unbelievable exchange, then you'll sit on the throne with me. Now, beloved, this award exceeds all the other promises, all of them that we have seen in the other six churches. This exceeds them all, exceeds them in glory, it exceeds them in honor, exceeds them in authority. Here's what our Lord is saying, let me into the chambers of your hearts, let me into the very seat of your will, and I'll let you into my Father's throne room. You invite me daily to fellowship with you. At what? Invite me to breakfast? NIV, by the way, got it wrong. Invite me to breakfast? No. Look at it in the Scripture. I don't know what your translation said. He said, I sup with you. The old translation is more accurate. I dine with you. For lunch? No. Because people back then didn't eat much during the day. The main meal, the center of your life, the foundation of your life, the main meal of your life, come invite me to dinner, and I will sup with you. I will dine with you, and I will fellowship with you on a daily basis. You hand me the authority over everything that is important in your life. And I'll give you authority to judge the universe with me. What a deal. <laughs> what a deal. What a bargain. What a bargain. I want to conclude by something I left. It's in all the seven letters. Everyone at the end of every letter says the same thing. I didn't touch it I left it all the way to the end. 
every letter end, he who has ear, let him hear. Right? Every letter. I left it to the end deliberately. I did not deal with them in the first six. What does it mean? I'm going to give you a Yusuf interpretation, okay? You with me? Say amen. amen. Well, some of you are. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. It means that you cannot sit here or watching online or whatever you are and say, wow, this is a great message for so-and-so. <laughs> or I wish so-and-so was here to hear that message. That's what it means. It means it's for you who have heard it. It means this message for everyone who reads it or hears it. <clears throat> this message is for you. Every admonition is for you. Every promise is for you. Every encouragement is for you. He who has ear, let him hear. It means that Jesus' message is for all, all who hear it, all who hear it. It's meant not only for the members of those churches, the seven churches, but it meant for everyone who reads the Word of God in the book of Revelation, in those seven letters. It's meant for you. And beloved, I know, I know, it's meant for me. Will you stand with me, please? And as our team comes up and lead us in an all-familiar chorus, I want to invite you, if the Holy Spirit spoke to you, come, pray with me, pray with us, and say, yes, Lord. And it doesn't matter whether you've been a believer for 50 years or for 50 days, or not a believer at all, the Holy Spirit knows, God knows, you know. Amen? Amen. Headed boys. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.